Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Music, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eamon Bell, the host of the channel. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Benjamin Stiggy, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Music at Columbia University and the author of An Unnatural Attitude, Phenomenology in Weimar Musical Thought, which was just published by University of Chicago Press in April 2021. Putting a little discussed set of German language primary sources into historical context, and expertly introducing them to an Anglophone audience, Stiggy explains the shared interests of a post-World War I constellation of musical thinkers whose disinterest in psychological and music-critical orthodoxy coalesces into a vital, if not entirely homogeneous, program for the phenomenological study of music. More generally, Stiggy's book is notable for its refusal to offer readings of specific musical works, either as instances of how some present-day analytical framework might be applied to a repertoire, or as indices of historical mindset. Instead, Stiggy convincingly offers a model for what it should be like to think with and listen alongside historical actors, a kind of historicized epistemology that has closer affiliations to the history and philosophy of science than it does with musicology's search for historical ears. Rarely threatening to simplify or trivialize the sometimes opaque philosophical tradition it sets out to engage with, the book nevertheless remains accessible, keeping references to internal controversies of greater interest to professional philosophers below the surface with generous footnotes pointing to an array of contemporary non-English sources. Enriched by convincing analytical examples and an ethical sensitivity not at all unlike that of its historical interlocutors, Stiggy's book, as well as the work of the writers he explores, will draw renewed attention from music historians and historians of philosophy alike, who will undoubtedly question the relative unfamiliarity of its subject matter and set out to reach across this gap to implement the models of historical listening he offers. Ben Stiggy, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Um, before we start, Ben, I wonder if you could just begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Yes. Uh, so I, the short description of, that I give of myself is that I do history of music theory, um, uh, which basically means I um, am interested in basically intellectual history of music, and I focus on 19th century and 20th century sources. Um, uh, my emphasis to date has been primarily German language. Um, uh, that may change going forward. Um, uh, and in terms of this book, um, I had set out about 10 years ago. I, I remember um, talking to a senior colleague um, around 2010 to 11, saying that in her experience, she was in an English department. Um, every book she wrote took exactly 10 years from sort of initial inception to, to print. Um, that seems to be pretty much accurate in, the, in this case. I was actually writing a book initially about the history of early musical modernism in relation to the history of psychology um, and um, became uh, sort of sidetracked um, gradually by uh, the sort of counter history to the history of psychology, um, which emerges in this book, which um, can be encapsulated in the term phenomenology. Um, which is to say, we'll talk more about this, you know, shortly. But just in, in order, it's a, a movement to sort of push back against the authority of 
naturalistic psychology um, as a way of knowing about things. Um, and uh, eventually that sort of counter history took over the narrative. And um, I also sort of just lost faith in the term modernism as a kind of, um, you know, as, as a key term in, in historiography. Um, so that actually sort of fell out. This is this I barely talk about what modernism might mean um, in this in this book at all. Um, and so uh, then sort of right the critique of, of psychology ended up becoming the main story. Um, and and I realized that in fact there was a whole book's worth of material just exploring these figures, uh, many of whom are as you already mentioned um, almost completely forgotten um, in contemporary historiography. Well, that's a, a perfect moment to get right into what the kind of scope and um, terms of reference of the book is. So in the introduction, you describe precisely that. Um, the book overall covers, like you said, a, a kind of little studied family of musical thinkers whose work can be described, uh, again, with this term phenomenological. Um, as you explained quite clearly in the book, phenomenology can be characterized as this kind of yeah, style of reasoning that addressed the poverty of naturalism. So that being the kind of stance uh, about how we come to know the world that naively accepts the givenness of perceptual experience, not really reflecting on the conditions for its presentness. Uh, in the first instance, naturalism is not at all that dissimilar to the trust in empiricism that animated the natural sciences up to the start of the 20th century. However, the suspicion or sense that naturalism constitutes a disposition or comportment toward the world rather than a feature of the world per se one that crucially can be adjusted or modulated through study and reflection, perhaps on music, um, is captured in the term of art that appears in the book's title, namely Attitude. So, so all these very kind of weighty matters of both past and continuing concern to philosophers. But it's not only that, since the phenomenological turn had a bearing not only on epistemology, but also on ethics, a connection dramatized um, by the global reach of the First World War and the various misadventures of the decades that preceded it. So uh, speaking to the introduction, before we start to pick over specific examples of this philosophical orientation or attitude in connection with music, could you sketch out for our listeners some of the key commitments of the phenomenological attitude in its most general sense, and maybe a little bit about how that connects to projects for social change based on the orientation or disposition towards the world that phenomenology advances? Uh, yes, I, so phenomenology is sort of famously difficult uh, term to dis, to define in short. Um, so sort of every major sort of account of it, going back to the uh, to the early days, you know, or in the early or the early twentieth century, sort of you know seems to sort of almost apologize for the difficulty of the task, and that goes also for some of the classic um, discussions of phenomenology by, for example, um, example Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who starts off his major nineteen forties book, The Phenomenology phenomenology perception by saying, you know, what is, what in fact do we even mean by phenomenology? So I'll try to do this sort of, you know, sort of succinctly and as possible. I mean, I think that the, the key thing that's, that's peculiar about this is that we're, the, the story sort of starts off within the confines of, of philosophy departments proper. And so how does that then fan out um, elsewhere? Um, so you know, the, I think the easiest thing to um, the easiest sort of way to go about this is to talk about what the sort of initial moment, the initial impetus for this sort of project of phenomenology, which comes in the work of Edmund Husserl, um, uh, precisely at 1900, who's who's basically trying to um, tease apart two things. Um, one is, you know, the study of logic proper, um, 
So in other words, what does it mean to sort of, you know, to think rightly or to think well or to consider questions of matters of, of validity um, apart from their being thought by any particular individual on the one hand? And then on the other hand, um, you know, what is it actually like when we think something? So what is it sort of empirically like to, to think something? Um, and so Husserl's worry was that these two different questions or issues or matters had been sort of conflated over the course of the 19th century study of logic. Um, and so this is what, in other words, what he's doing is um, writing this critique of what's known as psychologism, which is the, you know, the conflation of logic proper, matters of validity proper with thinking as a sort of action, like a, a sort of concrete empirical action. Um, and so in teasing these two things apart, um, uh, what he seemed to be doing was to be uh, uh, staking out a much wider array, a much wider sort of range or territory of ways of thinking about the world that didn't depend, or didn't assume that what we were talking about was what it was like for me to inwardly consider things. Um, and so I'm, that's a very gross characterization, but you can see how on the one hand it sort of starts off parochially, but then on the other hand, the sort of the broader image of, of, of this sort of way that Husserl is describing thought might suggest revisions to aesthetics and ethics. Um, so, you know, in terms of ethics, the sort of, so sort of shorthand way to describe this would be to say, if I'm wondering or considering the value of somebody else, I shouldn't first consider my own value and then try to project that onto them. It's like a very crude. In terms of aesthetics, um, I shouldn't sort of assume that the most important thing about an artwork and let's say like a musical artwork in particular um, is uh, the, like on the one hand, the way that I'm affected by it. Um, uh, you know, you know, as a matter of sort of the physiological impact on me or the psychophysiological impact on me, um, or the way that I might like project my own inward states onto it. Um, and so, uh, so I think um, then instead the, the attitude that, um, that, that Husserl and these many, many students and sort of several generations of, of, of kind of recipients of, of this attitude, um, what, what, what ends up happening is that um, the emphasis gets placed more uh, on the relationship, the different ways that one might relate to um, to an artwork um, or to its situation in the world, um, and to think of consciousness or being a human being and human being in the world as as being a matter of of uh, you know, to use Sartre's sort of description of the sort of bursting out towards uh, towards things. Um, and, and really primarily um, wanting to come up with descriptions or accounts of that relationship, that the stance, the disposition or the attitude towards things, which is an, sort of another way of saying, um, how is it that things are, like what, what is the way in which things are given to us? And, and that is um, a, a question which is neither totally subjectivistic nor objectivistic, but is about very much about the sort of relationship or stance. So that's I my, mean, yeah. Well, in, and in that, just br briefly, maybe that idea of stance or posture suggests that it can be kind of adjusted or modulated either through, I mean, because I think this is something that the people that we'll go on to discuss have in common is that you're not condemned to naturalism, right? There is a way in which certain um, disciplines of thought can rescue you from this position. So could you just talk a little bit about how some of the people viewed the exercise of kind of decoupling oneself from the naturalistic 
mindset and like embracing the phenomenological attitude. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think maybe this also gets a little bit to the question of the sort of the social project, which is which is also like very very difficult to, to pin down because um, uh, because it's not easily describable uh, in sort of any kind of high political shorthands. In other words, we don't have a leftist, rightist, or centrist sort of politics here. Um, but um, yes, right, exactly. So the fact that um, this sort of question of stance or attitude is really you know, thematizes the act-likeness of consciousness or the act-likeness of feeling and so forth means that, um, yeah, exactly as you say, there's there's there seems to be this sort of opening for revision. Um, this is something that becomes more explicit in sort of later um later work um, in the 20th century, but also later, sort of a later chapter of the book, um, since it's sort of roughly chronological. Um, um, but I think, you know, I, it, sort of to, to maybe put it especially crudely, I mean, I think one of the main things that people are concerned with in this early uh, reception of, of phenomenology is the sort of um, the danger of really like narcissism, <laughs> sort of self-absorption, the idea that to be an individual in the world is, is a matter of, of really just sort of like, you know, primarily valorizing and uh, emphasizing and sort of enjoying one's own kind of self-enclosedness as, as a private person. Um, and, um, you know, there are all sorts of, I, I tried not to get too sort of flippant about what that might mean. I mean, you could, you could, you, you could imagine how the sort of distaste for, the self-enclosedness of an individual you could 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 be narrated in lots of different kinds of terms um, and also you could see how that might, i mean the sort of the radical lefts and radical rights of the early 20th century in europe and, and elsewhere um you know share this kind of um this this real sort of almost sort of a hatred toward this kind of like 19th century self this, this private you know bourgeois citizen or something um and so um so that's i mean that's the sort of terrain that's the kind of the sort of you know general sort of affective kind of set that that these people are coming into okay well so let's make that we'll get a chance to talk yep. about um the liberatory potential maybe later on um but we'll move on to the, the first chapter the first body chapter of the book um and in, in this chapter we get a sense very quickly in fact to see in some detail what a phenomenology of music looks like uh, on the ground as it were so um, making things a little bit more immediately connected to music. Um, in your discussion of the music theory of Gustav Guldenstein, as it plays out in his uh, Theory of Key from 1928. So this concrete example is especially welcome as it underscores your interest in trying to capture something of music phenomenology as practiced rather than as a theoretical exercise that is exclusively given a kind of literary or written expression. As you explain Guildenstein addresses himself towards objects familiar perhaps to Western theorists of music, minor triads, dominant seventh chords, key, and so on. And kind of the big looming questions are things like, you know, were these objects of music theory in some sense uh, given a priori by something like acoustics? And if so, what kinds of correspondences would these objects have to the structure of individual listeners' experience? And I've already that's already couched in kind of mentalistic or, or psychologistic terms, uh, terms already. Answers to these kinds of questions, which crop up throughout the mu history of music theory, would have severe implications for not only the comparative study of musical cultures and psychology, but also kind of more prosaically for the logical exposition of music theory um, as a body of knowledge, which to that point had been characterized or could be characterized as 
concerned with either inductive or deductive derivations from apparently self-evident truths, whether those be um, physical, mathematical, or metaphysical in origin. Very briefly put, music phenomenology offered an alternative to these music theoretical accounts. So speaking back to Guildenstein again, could you explain what makes um, his approach distinctive from that of his precursors in this psychologistic or mentalistic tradition and how you read his discussion of music theory in light of his kind of direct contemporary intellectual influences? Yeah, sure. So first of all, I mean, Guildenstein has an interesting case here um, in that uh, he's almost completely forgotten. I mean, I, I have only encountered really sort of one or two other secondary sources um, on his work and in, in, in recent scholarship. Um, I, I, I don't exactly know why that might be the case, although you know, that's sort of a separate question. Um, but uh, you know, first of all, I should mention um, Guldenstein's, by, by career, by profession, he was um, a, a, what we would call a Dal Crows instructor, which is to say um, he taught uh, this, uh, at the time, very new sort of form of musicianship called Eurythmics, which was a matter of um, uh, sort of teaching people to um, effectively you know, feel comfortable or feel at home um, relating to music in a bodily way, in fact. Um, and so this is, you know, this is a very live um, method of teaching music today um, uh, with young children in particular, um, where you literally are, are uh, giving people suggestions, young people in particular suggestions for how to dispose themselves physically towards sounding music, but also um, kind of more interestingly and more, more sort of more musically interestingly, um, how to improvise and how to sort of work spontaneously with music. So I, I sort of say that as actually something I didn't emphasize maybe quite as much as I ought to have in, in the book. Um, this question of disposition and attitude is really very physical for him. Um, in terms of acoustics, um, uh, which was more what I was emphasizing in the book. Um, so Goldenstein uh, is writing this, what he calls a theory of key, which is really more of a sort of promissory note for an actual theory than anything. Um, and what he's primarily doing is responding to, um, the, at that point, a very long tradition, very robust tradition of using acoustics as the source of authority for your theory of music. So um, the most famous example here is, is Hermann von Helmholtz, the mid-19th century physicist who wrote this this still influential book that essentially seems to derive um, uh, the sort of uh, constellation, the sort of network of, 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 of modern, what he calls modern um, harmonic theory from acoustic phenomena. Um, and um, at least that's the way it's been read, although that's in itself sort of a misreading. And what Goldenstein basically ends up wanting to say, um, or in fact saying, is that there's been a confusion between two different types of object. On the one hand, if, if, I, if I'm listening to something like a cello tone, like a, a sustained cello tone, um, I, I can listen to this as just an isolated um, acoustic impression. I can hear, I can sort of focus on just the, the physiological impact that it has on, on me, but that's not actually hearing it as a musical, as a musical tone. And, and there's this other possible object, which he wants to isolate and, and, and sort of, you know, get back to, get back to the sort of the, this, this thing, uh, which is to say, um, even just as a sustained isolated note, um, uh, musically speaking, it's not actually isolated. It's, 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 it's um, inherently related to other uh, potential succeeding phenomena, succeeding musical notes. Um, and so if I'm, so the, what he actually does is to say, 
and this is maybe a little bit peculiar, but also kind of suggestive. So he's listening to uh, the the cello tones and sort of attending to their upper par- partial tones, which seems like a sort of naturalistic, acoustical way of, of going about it. But actually what he thinks is, well, um, you know, in fact, uh, these upper partial tones, as it happens, have this particular kind of uh, uncanny similarity to... Um, to what we would call a dominant seventh chord, which is a kind of harmony that seems, in many music syntactical contexts, seems to call out for a particular uh, succeeding note. Um, and he says it's not that it does that inherently and naturally, but there's something about our prior familiarity with the way that music goes, and I should say tonal, um, you know, tonal sort of harmonic music goes, that makes that feature of it, that acoustical feature of it, sort of salient to us as a, as a musical object. Um, and that's a very different kind of salience from just attending to its static, its steady state static um, sort of properties. Um, and and this is, a, it's, it's, it's a very interesting way of looking at things. I don't know anybody else who's made this particular um, case that, you know, there are sort of two overlapping objects that are sort of, you know, present there in the same, in the same kind of object, so to speak, um, those are the same you know, how, how, how to put it. I mean, it's like you're actually hearing two different things at the same time and, and you have the ability to sort of attend to one or attend to the other. But, um, but the, the, the mistake is in, in, conflating, in conflating them and we should sort of figure out what to do with, with the, the one that he's calling musical um, in, in a way that other people had not. Uh, so sure. that's, that's the sort of, that's his kind of case in point. Um, it might be worth just before we get on to the next chapter, uh, kind of drawing out that, uh, specific claim that like this coming to know the forward tendency of this otherwise seemingly static object comes from our prior musical experience and mm. in that sense it sort of emerges against the background of being in the world uh, and, and that again using phenomenological kind of terms of art or jargon quite deliberately how does that connect maybe to some kind of if his contemporaries intellectually and i suppose for Guildenstein in particular, who are the keynotes that he hits? Because um, I think it's important to get some names in, in the circulation now. Yeah, so I should, yeah, right. So, so Guildenstein, um, speci- the, the person he specifically cites is Husserl. Um, and in fact, so Guldenstein is sort of, I, I suppose, came to my attention because he was a student of Husserl and in fact had a, a sort of, you know, brief correspondence um, with Husserl about this, about this project. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you. I mean, I suppose you, you could connect him. I mean, the way when you use the, the term sort of being in the world, that sounds more like Husserl's you know, most famous student in, in philosophy, Martin Martin Heidegger. Um, I uh, I didn't sort of go that way, but I suppose you you could. I mean, I guess the other the other thing that's interesting about Guldenstein, which maybe sounds a bit Heideggerian, is that. Um, what makes the musical object what it is is that you're actually engaging with it as something as a matter of of doing something like not just perceiving it statically as an object but actually you're engaging in a um a way of sort of um behaving or you know sort of coping um with with things in the world as opposed to just looking at them um and so that actually does sound uh fairly Heideggerian when you put it in that, that way sure sure i i just emphasize that because mm-hmm. we'll get to see kind of throughout the later chapters that there are textual resonances right between these authors and, and what we might consider to like as, as little known as they are with resonances with the kind of more established body of phenomenology. Right. Um, and I suppose um, we'll meet one of those characters, I suppose in the next chapter, um, 
chapter two, um, which uh, you've titled Debussy Outward and Open. So chapter two um, executes a change of focus uh, from the analysis of music theoretical concepts, if you like, in the abstract to music in context, and specifically the music of Claude Debussy, examples of which appear throughout the chapter. So there are two phenomenological thinkers in play here. There's first uh, Jose Ortega y Gasset, who wrote evocatively and not at all without controversy on the dehumanization of art in 1925. Ortega turned his attention to the music of Debussy, which seemed to offer to him a kind of music that precipitated a change in epistemic aspect or attitude, and and that's his word, um, away from a preoccupation with one's interior response to the aesthetic object and more, again, in this kind of phenomenological way, more situated in worldly engagement that recovered some of the contingency of human experience. That kind of immersion in the world, which he and others had argued had been lost in the pressures of living day to day in the turbulent transition to liberal democracy that uh, Ortega experienced not only in Spain, but others across Europe during the 1920s. And secondly, there's the German philosopher and critic Gunther Stern Anders, an attentive student of Heidegger in Freiburg who fled west for France uh, around the same time as um, the latter's notorious rectorate began in 1933. Stern Anders shared with Ortega an interest in the music of Debussy and wrote about it in a 1927 essay, which you include as a translation in the appendix of the book. We'll make it back to that towards the end. Stern Anders addresses head-on the question of how attention and intentional listening operates in music so, quote, non-tendential or, quote, directionless, and they're his words, as that of Debussy. And in his so doing, you point out Stern Anders draws on the vocabulary of an earlier phenomenological essay that he wrote about ontology, a connection that clarifies the stakes of his account of listening to Debussy. So without, again, getting too stuck in the details, you write that in both treatments, um, quote, Debussy is not simply analyzed here, that is by Ortega and Stern Anders, as an example of some general truth, but is in fact understood to participate in the work of thinking through a problem, end quote, or what you elsewhere describe as, quote, an occasion for thought. It is in this spirit that your own analyses of Debussy that appear in this chapter must be read, and I think perhaps this is one of the aspects of the book that should find an appeal amongst the kind of broad readership. Your examples show that music can serve as a tool for getting to know the terms of long-lost philosophical problematics in their own right, and not simply as illustrations of or uh, evocations of the kind of history of ideas uh, contemporary to the moment of their composition. So could you describe what attracts you to the way that these two thinkers address 20th century music compositions in their writing, given, again, this context of phenomenology that we've been kind of sketching? And um, what kind of common ground did they share? And perhaps maybe more interestingly, uh, what uh, distinguishes Ortega? and Sternanders from each other in their approach to the music of Debussy. Um, yeah, so this was actually the first part of the book I wrote, um, and, and it was initially just going to be sort of a standalone um, study. And I, 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 was, I was just found myself struck in, in sort of reading around in this um, you know, sort of far-flung uh, literature from the mid-1920s that you had these two quite different... Um, uh, scholars, you know, critics, philosophers who were both um, found themselves converging on um, the music of, of Claude Debussy, which I think, you know, for musicologists, music historians, and music theorists, and you know, in 1925, 1927, Debussy is sort of over already. I mean, you, you, by 1925, you, you already have the sort of 
you know, the, the big moments of, of, you know, Weimar musical history, uh, if there's the, the, the break from tonality, if, you know, a decade or so earlier, more than a decade earlier. Um, so it's just like, why are they so fixated on, on, on Debussy? And um, I think that what makes Debussy interesting is um, that he provides um, a model for different ways of behaving, different ways of moving, different ways of relating to music. Um, and rather than just um, sort of another sort of change in style that is sort of kind of this incremental, uh, um, this kind of incremental sort of, you know, shift in technique or, um, or aesthetic value. Um, and, um, the, the, so it's the very question of what the relationship with music is that seems to be at issue in WC for various reasons. And, um, and so the way that I try to describe this, and this is, you know, coming from these, these thinkers themselves is that there's this kind of concern with the, with the, that little word with, like, what does it actually mean to be with, with music? Um, so on the one hand, with with the terms of to phenomenology, if you know if we're rejecting the sort of in, the emphasis on interiority and inwardness, um, what Ortega um, emphasizes is uh, is the very fact of the apartness of the music that it somehow seems to keep itself at this radical distance um, and to um, and to sort of short circuit our, our attempts to, to want to sort of project onto it or to identify with it. Um, uh, our, our, our own sort of pre-existing uh, values and, and, and so forth. Um, um, and then on the other hand, uh, with, 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 I'll call actually what's interesting here is that Gunter Stern Anders um, was at the, in, in 1927, he still went by the name Stern and only changed his name to Anders in 1930. Um, so, uh, at that, at that point, Gunter Stern is saying, well, uh, He's not actually responding directly to Ortega, but um, he's also sort of trying to think through this um, this question of what it means to be with something, and, and the way that he's couching this is as a um, uh, a critique of given theories of attention, aesthetic attention in particular, um, and to say that uh, if we primarily think of attentiveness uh, to music as being this matter of sort of um, in intentionally and voluntaristically sort of tracking one event after another, we're actually missing this much more um, sort of rich and encompassing way of being with music, which he describes with a sort of this kind of characteristic neologism of, of um, uh, in German, sich gehen lassen, so letting, letting oneself go. Um, and um, so the two, these two different models of, of what Ortega is calling this sort of outward directed concentration, the sort of out, outward orientation uh, on the one hand, and then Sharon Anders on the other hand as this matter of letting oneself go, um, they're sort of, they're distinct but related. Um, but it's, it's, it's totally fascinating to me that, that somehow Debussy would have occasioned this, um, these sort of theoretical, you know, uh, reorientations that they're that they're that they're both engaged with. I mean, Ortega also writes about literature, so it's he's he's, he's not only concerned with WC, but it's WC is very much the one who enables this. Stern Anders um, is um, you know at that point in his life uh, trying to sort of imagine the possibility of a career as a philosopher of music, uh, and writes about a lot of different music, including including Wagner and, and Mozart, but um, but Debussy is the one that sort of crystallizes this critique of given a given understanding of what attention even is in, in the first place, um, which just to me seems sort of 
you know, frankly, kind of mind mind boggling and, and sort of odd that, that people have overlooked that, especially the Stern essay, the, the Ortega essay, which is, as you say, the dehumanization of artists been widely known as translated in the 50s, I think, and, and you know, heavily cited for a certain period of time, um, although sort of, you know, maybe not kind of attended to as much as, as it might be in, in contemporary music scholarship um, as well. But in the, in the Stern case, that essay is just completely gone from the record. And I think it's just, it falls so squarely between sort of history of philosophy on the one hand and sort of history of music aesthetics on the other hand, it's published in a music journal, uh, that it's, it's kind of like, you know, fallen between the chairs to sort of, you know, co-opt a German expression. Sure. And, and just briefly before we move on, like, in this chapter, we start to see your own kind of music and analytical examples coming out. Um, I wonder, could you just talk a little bit about, um, well, not only the kinds of ways that you in this chapter write and think about Debussy, but specifically what features of your own kind of, albeit brief analyses, are inspired by or in response to some of the ideas of either Ortega or Sternanders? Yeah, I mean, I you know, effectively what I realize with a lot of these these characters um, is that they seem to have quite rich analytical insights or you know, musical insights, but um, but not always fleshed out. And that's not necessarily because they couldn't, but just because the sort of the genre demands of the kinds of essays and books that they were writing were very different in, in the 1920s from what they are today. Um, and, and so I sort of took it upon myself to try to flesh out um, some of what I thought was implied in what they were saying, which, which basically also meant that, you know, really I had to um, reflect myself on um, ways in which I was hearing things or could hear things um, which is, you know, honestly, that's sort of the work of, of a lot of contemporary music theory and uh, at least in, you know, in, in English language scholarship today. Um, so this was this, the case in which I sort of spent most time doing that. And I sort of, throughout the book, I, I made a few other sort of interventions of that, that kind. Great. Yeah, we'll, we'll get a chance um, perhaps to, to get to those before we, we end up speaking. So uh, we'll move on now to the third chapter of the book titled um, Hearing With. And this chapter turns to the writings of Heinrich Bessler, who was, like Sternanders, a student of Heidegger in the 1920s, uh, who sought to put into question the idea of a listener who experiences music uh, somehow entirely on their own. Even if the Einzelnhörer was a fiction that brushed away the obvious sociality of music, as most people experience it, it nevertheless remained operative in idealizations of concert hall etiquette and in uh, the psychoacoustic lab. So this chapter deals with an array of sometimes difficult concepts that Bessler develops in his earliest mature writing that explicitly combine music theoretical insight with mainline phenomenological concerns. In his writing, he develops extremely creative hearings of early music and Baroque music, in which his concerns with excavating long past um, ethico-philosophical programs from specific musical texts makes the concerns of new musicology seem, and this is my opinion, (laughs) belated, stuffy, and even sometimes disconnected from musical experience. Um, so one key to Bessler's way of thinking is his notion of communal hearing or mithören, a direct echo of Heideggerian terminology. To clarify this idea, you describe two points of contact in particular that I'm sure um, we'd be interested to hear more about. First is Bessler's diagnosis of instrumental music from the Baroque period, specifically the 17th century instrumental suites of Johann Hermann Schein. Bessler argues that Schein's music keeps traces of vocality and utility as dance music at bay 
through the use of compositional artifices that de-emphasize the music's affordances for communal action or, or doing with. But Basler is not content with explaining this with respect just simply to style change or shifting generic convention. Instead, the apparent placelessness of its instrumental lines, and this is again something he really argues music analytically, promote modes of access that endow the work with what later concretized into the kind of classical romantic autonomy of the musical work, an attitude that only obscures or mystifies this kind of music's origins in group activity. Um, this line of argument evidence is what you call, quote, Bessler's commitment to the idea that there is indeed a historically manifest and significant distinction between modes of hearing, end quote. And then this discussion of Shine is followed up with Bessler's contrastive analysis of 13th century motets, um, a genre of um, vocal polyphony in which he seeks to marshal evidence of a musical practice whose musical language afforded, if not mandated, precisely the kind of collective participatory action that was not so much directed as a musical object per se, but toward the connections between performers that emerge as a figure against the background of the compositional structure. You carefully piece together Basler's writing and that of his influence to paint a picture of a coherent phenomenological program, despite the tricky terms in use and the partiality of his account in places. So could you tell our listeners first a little bit more about Basler himself and how you managed, I think successfully, to parse out his contribution to music phenomenology without entirely failing to acknowledge his, his political affiliations to Nazism in the years following the dissertation from which most of these ideas are drawn. Yeah, so Heinrich Bessler is, is the, the character in this um, cast of, of, of figures who's probably best known today, I, I would say, um, which is sort of why I, he's the only person I actually devoted really an entire chapter to as a, as a single figure. Because I, I just, I felt some responsibility to give an evaluation of his body of work as a whole um, uh, that I felt was uh, sort of partial or maybe slightly distorted in the reception that he's had um, in recent musicology. And I should just say, I think, um, you know, if you're looking back to sort of the, the last 2021, last is 20 years or so, 30 years, maybe 30 years of, of musicology, music studies, Bessler has this funny position where he's often seems to be almost celebrated um, precisely because um, he is an early figure who just articulates this absolute antipathy <laughs> towards um, the idea of musical autonomy. In other words, the idea of something like absolute music or the idea that there's something called music, like, you know, the music itself, which in 1980s and 1990s musicology was, um, you know, such a sort of high profile um, target for critique. Um, and, uh, and so, um, so Bessler is one of the earliest people, uh, people to kind of make this critique and, and hence I think has been sort of understood to be um, basically a kind of sympathetic figure. Um, but then you have this peculiarity that he was just absolutely with no apology and outright Nazi joined the party um, uh, very, you know, well, not, not very early on, but early enough that, um, you know, there would have been less sort of obvious pressure to do so. Um, he was in fact a member of the, um, of the SA, the, you know, there's the stormtroopers, so forth. So, you know, so squaring these two kind of, um, uh, sides of this character, um, and I don't want to sort of you know overstate things or, or sensationalize. It struck me as sort of something that needed to be done, and 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 in in the end, the way that I approached this was just to sort of really dig into his ideas um, as 
as carefully and thoughtfully as I as I could, um, um, and sort of keeping a clear eye about about the um, you know, there's obviously bad politics, while also recognizing that he had a lot of sort of insight. And you know, I I this is uh, there's an obvious and very direct parallel in Heidegger reception, where you know for you know, every every so often, there's this massive sort of upheaval, and and you know, how do we think about Heidegger, who's one of the most brilliant thinkers of the 20th century? Some people think the most brilliant thinker of the 20th century, whatever, um, and yet, obviously, just committed these gross moral and political errors. Um, and so, how do you square these these two things? So, you know, I don't think that I necessarily have any brilliant resolution of this kind of tension, um, but. Um, you know, it, it certainly made for sort of a, a special sense of kind of responsibility in trying to think about this stuff. Um, so um, the 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 thing that strikes me as especially interesting about about Bessler as a musical thinker um, is that um, you know he's really trying to come up with some other way of describing music um, other than as this kind of, you know, sort of like this autonomous object, which was, I would say, sort of almost the only available option um, to German music scholars in, in the mid 1920s. And the way that he does this is by saying that um, really that, you know, what what music is, is um, and, and the way that it's been recorded and you know, archived uh, in manuscripts and so forth from the Middle Ages and onwards is as, as, as kind of um, a series of symptoms of what he calls um, the facticity of life, which is a, a Sort of a term or phrase he gets from his you know, from seminars with Heidegger, which you know, are now published. You can go back and like literally sort of make a you know correlate what's happening in Bessler's writings from the nineteen twenty from nineteen twenty three with you know, lectures he would have um, would have heard from Heidegger from a few months earlier, which is just completely fascinating, right? I'm not the first person to have done this, but I think I've I've gone a little bit further than than um, uh, than than what some previous scholars have done and making this you know, fleshing out these correlations. Um, so the facticity of so what, what the facticity of life is just sort of a, a yeah, it's always sort of a fancy term for saying like the way in which we're um, the way in which we encounter the already given, like the, 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 the already givenness, the sort of madeness, uh, the sort of thrownness, our, our thrownness into the world of, of musical significance and, and musical musical meanings um, and um, and so, uh, uh, so what we're trying to do, what Bessler is trying to do, is come up with a description of what it means to sort of be, you know, in the midst of these complex uh, musical phenomena, um, especially, uh, especially related to like what you know, what is the history of polyphony, multi-voiced music? Um, it's it's a matter of um, this gradual move from sort of really like an, an index of relationships between acting people uh, towards this abstracted notion of counterpoint as something that is, um, uh, you know, just a matter of sort of, you know, notes on the page. And, and is it Bessler, I mean, it's, 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 it's difficult to do justice to, uh, I, I think, the sort of the kind of fineness of his thinking, but there's this way of, of like wanting to just really go back to uh, the idea of contraparental practice as, as this, uh, opportunity for um, imagining your relationships with others in this very direct way. And, um, um, and, and in particular, thinking that so what it means to be polyphonic is really to sort of be situated in a complex texture um, and hearing your relationship, your, your relation, the relationship of your sort of activity to others as a matter of that relationship, um, as opposed to as a component within some block of of sort of resulting texture that is meant to be appreciated f- for that like completeness and that sort of 
you know, for being that one sort of unified thing. Um, so this is not about sort of organic unity. Um, this is about, um, you know, understanding how you can sort of track your your sort of role within within a larger network. So in effect, when you hear um, what, what Bessler seems to say is when you know when you hear medieval music, um, polyphonic music from you know the 12th century to whatever. I mean, he sort of thinks the 17th century is where things sort of start to fall apart. Um, the, if you if you're listening to it as a as a mass of sound, you know, one sort of sounding mass, you're not actually hearing the thing. You're hearing um, some falsified, you know, modern um, uh, uh, in, in impression that, that the thing itself is actually the network of relationships, which are constantly shifting and can't be sort of apprehended at any one moment, but can only be sort of, you know, partly grasped by sort of, you know, taking part in one in one way or another. So, so that's a that's a different kind of way of thinking about like this problem of the so-called autonomous artwork or autonomous musical work, which um, on the one hand is very sort of fussy and peculiar, but on, and like, you know, I don't think he ever completely sort of fleshed out the, the significance, but also seems to me to be sort of rich and suggestive. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's now is as good a time as any to mention um, in relation to what you've just said about like, uh, Po- negatively the fussiness or positively yeah. the kind of meticulousness yeah, yeah. of, of Bessler's argument um just in, in your own exposition of it it's reflected in the sensitivity to for example the use of the German language so I think this book is interesting and worthy for its um kind of care to terminological detail and that we'll see it we, we, we will the reader will see it in this chapter but also in all the other chapters that that we've discussed and, and the one that we're about to discuss now um so Turning to the fourth and final chapter, body chapter in the book, um, Techniques of Feeling. Um, Techniques of Feeling explores further the thought of Sternanders, uh, this time after his entry into the German expatriate community of exiled Jewish intellectuals in California, and indeed his subsequent return to Germany in the early 1950s. So this is the kind of brief chronological act that we sketched out at the start that the later chapters deal with, uh, more recent developments in phenomenology. Sternanders, like many of his compatriots, was horrified by the development of the technology for nuclear war, which heralded an age of destruction on a scale that far exceeded the capacity of socially minded critics to anticipate, never mind to counter. Sternanders addressed this gap through the cultivation of feeling, which could be achieved through the exercise of the aesthetic and empathic imagination within the same broadly outward directed and contingent mood that characterizes the phenomenological attitude that we've spoken so much about. This chapter moves in two parts to excavate something of Anders's notion of feeling, a notion he develops in the late 1950s, but adumbrates in his earliest um, phenomenological writings. First, it mines uh, Sternander's musings about testing and experiment, in which, like some of his contemporaries, he saw the kernels of a liberatory potential. This was a somewhat heterocline position since even setting phenomenology's exasperation with psychologism aside to one moment, there were plenty, there was plenty of day-to-day evidence to suggest that actually existing influential psychometric regimes like those used in army recruiting effectively reproduced bureaucratic and later authoritarian tendencies in the populations being tested. Second, it explores a musical setting from 1962 of one of Stern Anders's poetic texts, the Epitaph for Aikichi Kubayama by Herbert Eimert, an electronic musician attached to the NWDR studios at Cologne. Kobayama was perhaps the first of many innocent lives lost to nuclear testing, 
by Allied Nations. Eimert's epitaph lasts 23 minutes and explores the transformations and distortions of a speaker's reading of Stern Anders' poem. But reading the electronic studio manipulation of these recordings as an emblem of the depersonalization or even dehumanization of the speaker by the application of the destructive power of nuclear technology can only take us so far. Rather, as you carefully argue, Eimert's musical piece can be heard instead less as an expression of the themes or sentiments proper to a right-thinking individual's response to the nuclear age, and more as an exercise in the production of feeling proper to the historical moment of the hydrogen bomb's emergence. This exercise in cultivating what you call techniques of feeling is as world-oriented and as dependent on technique as the more self-censored, psychologistic, poetic responses that Stern Anders and Eimert sought to displace are inward-looking and supposedly natural. So could you speak a little bit about your hearing of this piece by Eimert and the various ways that it refracts Stern Anders' text so as to throw light on the kind of complex ambivalence, both hopeful and hopeless, that read across in Stern Anders' reflections about technique, testing, and feeling? Yeah, so uh, this, I should also um, contextualize this a little bit by saying that um, the, the text... Um, that 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 uh, that Hermann Eimert was using by um, Günter Anders, and so now now it, it actually makes sense to call him Günter Anders. That's, that's a bit confusing, but I you know, try to avoid that in, in the book by just referring to him as Stern Anders. Uh, now he's Günter Anders because this is a text from the 1950s, um, and the the book from which that text comes um, is actually probably Anders' well, I should have clearly Anders's most influential and, and well known text um, called. Uh, Die Antikphiatypes Menschen, which uh, is not, as a record, date of recording, not yet published in English, although there's a, a translation that, uh, which is, I believe, forthcoming, uh, translates to the obsolescence of the human being. Um, so this was a, a major, major work in um, uh, sort of Cold War era uh, European intellectual culture. I, I know people who s- report that they were still reading this book um, in their sort of, you know, philosophy or ethics classes in, in gymnasium in, in Germany in the 1990s um, to give you a sense of the sort of the impact that this had. It was translated into Italian, I think into French, but for some reason never to English uh, for sort of obscure historical reasons. Um, so it was a major, major anti-nuclear sort of manifesto. Um, and um, so it makes um, sense. It's not actually surprising at all that Herbert Eimert working at the, um, the Cologne studios would have... Um, latched onto it and, uh, you know, been very sympathetic to, um, to its sort of claims. There were other, uh, I won't, you know, go into this, but there were actually other figures in the avant-garde who were reading it as well and working with it, including Luigi Nono um, and uh, Friedrich Terha. Um, so, um, yeah, so what, what strikes me is I'm trying to, I was trying to do justice to Eimert's kind of poetic ambitions um, with this work um, in, in trying to capture something about this really sort of, um, difficult cross-cutting or intertwining of this this affect of of utter hopelessness uh, that Anders is um, is projecting in the wake of of you know, the Holocaust or Auschwitz as well as Hiroshima and and other um, uh, disasters um, uh, and this sort of you know effective imperative to find a, a degree of, of hope. Um, and it's, it's very difficult. Anders himself, I think is, um, unclear on what degree of, of hope is actually ex- available to us in, you know, 1956, 1962, even at the time of his death in 1992. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think for me, I don't really talk about this in the book, but I mean, there's, I, I think this is an ongoing challenge we have. I mean, we, we, in terms of climate change, most obviously it's, um, you know, there are sort of, you know, maybe sort of not to get too grandiose, but also the sort of, um, projected kind of degradation of democracy that we are dealing with in the early 20th century, 21st century and so forth. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, that's kind of, for me, sort of a broader context, um, uh, but um, you know, I, th- I think so. Getting back to the musical artifact itself, um, I, I I think what Eimert is uh, my gamble. My uh, is that Eimert is is effectively trying to capture something of Anders's call to challenge perception in, in a in a way that's sort of you know on the one hand familiar from other kind of avant-garde projects, but um, but also sort of somewhat more particular here in that the emphasis is very much on um, the idea of feeling as, again, a sort of act as opposed to sort of an effect um, and and as opposed to something that's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of quasi-voluntary, although it's not quite fair to say um, that, you know, we can all just sort of willy-nilly sort of choose how we feel in relation to something. Um, but uh, you know, I, first of all, I think I think Eimert's um, electronic piece is incredibly evocative and quite effective. I, I've talked to other people who, you know, especially people who work with you know, composers who work in electronic media, who um, find it very dated and sort of you know like fusty and so forth. And you know, I, I, I get that, but I, I also think it's it's just um, there's something about the way in which it, um, especially if you listen to the entire twenty odd minute, um, sco- uh, you know. Uh, sort of span of it um, that it um, it really does sort of draw you into this this particular sort of set of potential kinds of feelings that are also triggered or, or sort of you know prompted by the way in which the text that it works with it sort of reworks this reading of a, of a poem as you mentioned um, by by Anders um, so that you're sort of you're sort of asked to, to actually think about what it might mean to fear or to hope, but not just to like experience the, the sensation of fear or experience the sensation of hope, but sort of reflect on what it might mean to have those kinds of um, yeah to, to sort of engage those kinds of feelings um, and um, but also at the same time to sort of ask us to to sort of consider the possibility that. Um, that there's some other way of fearing or hoping um, or perhaps shame is the other sort of uh, major affect that's kind of feeling that's sort of checked, name checked in the poem, that, that there might be something that um, goes beyond any of those things. So that you're, you're, so that the sort of feeling as a act of feeling as a thematic of the, of the piece itself becomes an, an opening or an opportunity for thinking, okay, what might I have to do in order to, revise my attitude or my disposition towards this world, which is a horrific world. Like things are not as they should be. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to forestall um, the inevitability of certain catastrophes, but I, I might be able to do to sort of, you know, have some modicum of um, uh, I, I can I can try to so, you know, in, in, in sort of engaging my my state of hopelessness. Perhaps I can in in in, in, in I can imagine some um, modicum of of hope in in the in the very possibility of revising what it might mean to to hope. That's sort of as far as I think that kind of piece gets as a project. That's as far as I kind of get in terms of my willingness to you know to engage it 
in the terms that I think Anders is asking us to to, to do. And having spoken now kind of about Debussy, about these polyphonic motets, about a piece of electronic music, um, and without overstating it, because obviously that's still a very narrow slice of what's possible in musical culture, it shows, the arc of the book shows that there are many different ways in which we could start to think um, if we like historically in this phenomenological mood, um, either as analysts or as historians of a particular moment, not necessarily the 1920s or the 1950s. Um, and I suppose in a, perhaps in a bid to equip people with at least some of the materials necessary to do that or in, in a bid to kind of allow um, readers, if you like, to make up their own mind about some of the key texts you've included um in the appendix, a number of texts from uh, 1925 to 1927, so a relatively narrower slice of um, music history, but one that is quite focused and one that evidences um, a, a, a logical progression, if you like, from the writing of Hans Mersmann through to the um, Stern Anders essay in English about Debussy that you draw on in the earlier chapters. So could you talk just a little bit about um, why you chose to include those primary sources and um, a little bit as well about um, what's left out or what, you know, given there's a finite amount of space there, um, who are some of the other figures that you could imagine um, your book opening up the study of, um, if not for future work for yourself, but for those that are willing to read it and engage kind of as deeply with the texts as you've done? Yeah, so these, the selection of texts, these five um, primary sources, they're all from 1925 to 1927. Um, sort of came out of my realization that in many of the cases, the texture of what they're saying really exceeds what I could, you know, sort of, you know, synopsize or, or evaluate um, in the context of, of, a, of a chapter discussion from, you know, from the perspective of 2021. Um, uh, I, I sort of, I, I think I felt especially um, compelled or had almost a sort of obligation to share the work of Gunter Stern, Gunter Stern Anders, um, who I, I, I honestly think is the most interesting and sort of vital figure of, of, of all here and someone who really merits kind of a, a re, uh, rediscovery of. Um, uh, and so the essay of, of his that's included here is, is his essay on, on Debussy, um, which is you know, also could be sort of described as an essay on sort of what it means, like what is the nature of attention, musical attentiveness, what are the possibilities for musical attentiveness? Uh, and then I thought, well, okay, you know, on its own, that it, it's 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 only a partial view. So there's other sort of short texts which are all sort of explicitly asking what 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 could phenomenology do for us um, as a as a way of thinking about music um, in the mid 1920s. Um, and uh, and it's, it's very clear that this this particular succession of texts is kind of a conversation among among sort of you know, I, also something that I mentioned in the book or thematized in the book is that they're all young men. I mean, they're all sort of in their you know early to mid twenties, which is kind of in itself I think thematically significant. They're all so it's it's it's, it's a moment of sort of revision, you know, um, following especially um, the First World War. Um, so that motivates that sort of um, selection. Um, uh, you know, so, and some of these texts are, are you know, more, I'll just, you know, just to say this, bluntly, more valid than others, right? I mean, the, I mean, historians are not supposed to necessarily take those kinds of, make those sorts of judgments. But I think, you know, some just are clearly sort of, 
misguided in certain ways, but in, in sort of interesting ways. And I think that's fine to, to capture. Um, um, in terms of what's left out, I mean, I, I'll just say, first of all, I mean, one of the things that's um, uh, just needs to be said is that these are all men. Um, uh, uh, there were women studying with Husserl, um, most famous, the most famous, best known is probably Edith Stein, um, who was a sort of well-known theorist of empathy in particular. Um, but did not write about music and and certainly not uh, certainly not music and, and not really about aesthetics either. Um, I, it's also worth mentioning, um, you know, sort of one of the best known of, of of Heidegger students was Hannah Arendt, who was in fact married to Günther Anders, Günther Stern, um, for um, more than a decade um, or about a decade, uh, and and in fact would be actually absolutely fascinating to read alongside him. They, Stern was working on this dissertation about music um, sort of side by side with Hannah Arendt as she was writing about, about Augustine. They're both reading Augustine together. So, I mean, that's, that's actually a non-musical sort of way that I would yeah, branch out. Um, um, uh, but then um, I think the other, uh, uh, the sort of omissions, and I mentioned this as well, is um, uh, are, it, um, Anders, this dissertation that I just mentioned um, uh, a moment ago, this dissertation on music, which uh, he never actually published uh, in his lifetime, which was published in 2017 in German. Um, this is a major project of rediscovery um, today, which I think uh, would be well worth sort of pursuing. I've actually translated this text. Um, uh, there's a, a great edition by a, a, a scholar in, in Vienna um, uh, named Reinhard Ellenzone that, that was uh, published a few years ago, and I'm trying to get an English edition of this out right now. Um, so um, those are um, some kind of uh, possibilities. I think then the other um, person I, I write quite a bit about in the book, um, sort of uh, at the end of the first chapter, is uh, a, a character named Arthur Wolfgang Kohn, who um, died at the age of 26 in a hiking accident um, and was, you know, by all, all impressions, quite brilliant and, and would have had a lot to say about um, the question of phenomenology and, and music had he lived, uh, he died in 1920, um, and in particular about the question of, of musical value, which um, is uh, tied up with the sort of broader concerns with uh, questions of political economy, theories of, 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 of political economy. Um, so that's another sort of loose thread that that is kind of left uh, dangling. Sure, and a very natural question, I suppose. You spoke a little bit about that translation, but given that we're kind of coming up on time, and I've already taken plenty of your own time, um, uh, would you be able to let our listeners know what you are working on now, maybe in addition to that translation, or a little bit more about that translation, and uh, where they should look out for it next in terms of... Um, journals or books or anything like that um yeah so the uh, i am trying to get this translation published i think it's, it's a bit of a labor of love but i think it will be rewarding to to a wide sort of variety of, of possible readers um you know, there, we are kind of experiencing a sort of I, I think you know revived interest in phenomenology um, within music studies more more broadly both sort of across the disciplines music theory musicology ethnomusicology um and um so i that actually my other Another project I'm working on right now is a co-edited collection with um, uh, my colleagues Jonathan D'Souza and uh, Jessica Wiskus, um, which is going to be a handbook of the phenomenology of music. Um, and uh, but the the sort of my own scholarly direction is actually um, taking um, taking off from this question of 
of value, sort of a theory of value that that, that Cohn um, is posing in 1920. And um, so I, I became interested just at the tail end of this this phenomenology book and this question of why why it is that at certain moments in history, sort of the question of value. Um, comes to the fore at all. Um, and um, so, uh, so it's not so much sort of, a, you know, a book about the theory of musical value so as, as such, but rather sort of, you know, from an intellectual historical standpoint, why, why does value become interesting to people at particular moments in history? Great. Sounds, um, sounds great. Sounds exciting. Um, I, I look forward to catching up with that in print when it comes out. And um, I just want to thank you again um, for coming on the show. Um, ben, it was a pleasure to hear more about what you're working on and indeed to hear about um, an unnatural attitude. So thanks a lot for sharing your time with us and um, the very best of luck with those future projects. Thanks. Take care and stay well. Okay. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.